Okay, ready for the first and last day of the week, right? Uh, we have coming up an exam due today that I gave out last time. That worked better than the others? Worse? Horrible? I hate you? <laughs> Hopefully not. What Was it better? Was it easier to have the time and the yeah. access to fear? You did notice the difference probably in the questions though. That they couldn't, just, weren't a lot of them you could just go look up easily and just say, oh, answer one, answer two, answer three. So if you still uh, key, hold on to them right now if you want to, and you can turn them in at the end of class if you're going to give it to me. If you forgot it somehow, scan it and email it to me or something. If somebody forgot it, and you know, take a picture, picture it and send it to me so I can get it, because I want to try to get those graded for you and back. But just in case, because I'm going to be summarizing the stuff at the end of that chapter, and maybe I'll say something that just happens to hit one of the questions you were unsure of. So you know, I may say something that changes your mind. So hold on to it. You can turn them in after, after class. Uh, we do have a quiz. It's, it's, it's up. It's not active yet. You won't see it yet. It'll be, I'll put it up after I get off, off of class here. And I'll put quiz six up. That'll be available through next Tuesday, so you'll have plenty of time between now, over the break, and then I'll remind you again next Tuesday to take that. And homework six will also be due on Tuesday. And then coming up the end of next week is the third and, third and final article review will actually be due then as well. So a few little things coming up. And looking at what we have left, we have seven chapters to cover, and we have nine lectures counting today. So we have seven chapters to cover still in the book, and nine lectures left. Counting, nine lectures counting today. So you may notice if you're printing out the slides, you may start noticing that a few of them are disappearing when I come up here. I may cut out some things that I don't think are quite as important, so I concentrate on most of it. And we'll feel, so if you're following along in the slides, you know, if you jump a slide or two, don't worry about it. It's just that I've changed and I've taken out one or two that, while interesting, may not be the most important thing, and I want to make sure we get through, get through everything here. So any questions? Get this. No? Do we have class? Our, our exam is on Tuesday. Our exam is on, the exa final exam is on Tuesday the 8th. Here. Do, do we have class that Thursday? No. Thursday prior? Thursday before, yes. We have class that week before. So the, twos, the, the exam classes end the end of that week, which is 3rd or 4th of May. 4th? Yeah, 4th. 4th of May would be the Friday, would be the end of classes, and then final exam week starts right after that. So review day? Review day? I've given you all the, re you have the reviews. You have, four, you have four exams to review. That'll be all your materials. I will, I'll talk about it a little bit more then, but yeah, there will be a little bit there, but most of, I'm giving you the four exams will be most of your review because that's what's going to be on the final. Yes, sir? Um, are you going to most likely Except for the new material, yes. So for old material, all you have to study is. Yep. I, I don't guarantee I'll pull the question word for word, but I may take the question, ask you something about this. Well, maybe I'll make it a multiple choice. Maybe I'll make a multiple choice of true false. You know that. But but the materials there, you don't have to go back and review anything else. If you study the material on those four exams, you know just don't memorize answers because I'll switch. I will switch some things around. I'll put some of them on word for word. You know there will be some of them that'll be exactly back on there again. So, but yeah, for studying, for that, now the material since the fourth exam, after the fourth exam, which will come up sometime, probably sometime shortly after this, you know, probably the end of the next week, 
then that new material will be the stuff you have to study. So really you're studying for one exam plus you review your material from the previous four. <laughs> exam four may be again with the amount of time we have to do, but fi final exam, no. Final exam is specifically scheduled here on time. So, Yes, sir. Good. It did work a little. Okay. It may be something I try. I'm just experimenting with. As I said, it takes a little bit more for me to make up the questions because I can't just, you know, pick out. Do you know what? You know, I can't do the question sketch an HR diagram. Well, I know you can grab the picture in the book and copy it. So I have to do things where you have to try to interpret it more. But if you're learning more out of it, uh, that seems to be better. I want to see how everyone does too. I'm hoping that the grades will be will be a bit better. So, okay. Other questions? Okay, let's start off with our picture for the day then. We have a couple of star clusters here. So, appropriate picture for what we were talking about last time and the exam and this. These are a couple of open star clusters. So very, very young star clusters. There's one up to the upper right. You can see a cluster of blue stars. Upper left, cluster of blue stars. And towards the lower right, you have a cluster of blue stars. And those are two open clusters of different ages, and I just forgot which was which. The older one is, the lower right is around 300 million years. So the other, that's thoughts. okay. The one to the upper left is the older of the two clusters. It's about 300 million years old. Still relatively young, you know, much, much younger than the sun. The one to the lower right is even younger, is only 60 million years old. So, by, and we can tell that by looking at the types of stars that are there. A star cluster forms that whole group of stars together. And as they form, the biggest and most massive stars go through their fuel the fastest and disappear. So when you get to a cluster that's only 60 million years old, you see a lot of the stars at the very upper end of the main sequence. When you get to even 300 million years old, a lot of those highest stars up on the main sequence have started to disappear and have evolved off. And then as you go further and further on, you know, they go further and further down the main sequence till you get to some of the old globular clusters type, uh, globular type clusters, which actually have stars the age of the, the type of the sun that are leaving the main sequence. And the other object, it says, it says, if you look at the title, it's titled Star Clusters Young and Old. Well, they're really both very young star clusters. The old object is this little, little dot there. Looks like a little planet. It's actually a planetary nebula. And we mentioned those last time. That's the end state of a star like the sun. So the star like the sun will eventually push out its outer layers and form a little disk like that as visible from, you know, in this case, several hundred to thousands of several hundred to thousand light years away. And would actually look like that little disk. So that's not a big bright blue star. That's actually a little cloud of gas and dust, which is the outer layers of a star's atmosphere that have been expelled out into space. So it's not related to the star cluster. It's actually about twice as close as the star cluster. So if you can see it in three dimensions, you know, it's one's here and one's twice as far away beyond it. They just happen to look in the same direction on the sky. And again, one of those things that we lose in astronomy is the distance, distance aspect. So questions on our picture? No, 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 nope. Okay, well, let's go ahead and I'm going to show you the very end of chapter 12, and I'll go through that that way if you. Oh, no, 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 we don't need to 
we were looking here last time was where I finished up. We'd sort of gone through all the evolution in star clusters. Um, this was in a globular cluster. We just looked at a couple of open clusters. Globular cluster is different in that all the stars are bound together. So they're there together for life. So they're all born together. They're all going to stay together. They're all, you know, they'll all die together. Different times, but they'll all stay. So it's a big grouping of stars that is gravitationally being held together. Those open clusters we looked at weren't. There's not enough mass there to hold them together, and they slowly spread out over time. So while you see them when they're 60 million years and 300 million years old, if you come back when they're 5 or 10 billion years old, they'd have all spread out across, the, across space. And you see, when you look at a, the HR diagram, if you plot the HR diagram of all these stars in the globular cluster, you see almost the evolutionary stages of the sun. You see the main sequence here. And at this point, the sun, on this one, the sun would be right about here. So there's a little bit younger globular cluster. Stars like the sun haven't quite left the main sequence. And then, but a number of stars here are all just leaving. Follow up to the red giant branch. There's the ignition of helium, the helium flash. Come back down to the horizontal branch where they're burning helium. Move back up the giant branch again as they use up that helium and then end up down here at the end as a white dwarf. So we kind of looked through that last time. And then the only slide I didn't get to, which I don't think had anything to do with the exams, that's why I sort of just left it, was really just giving you an idea of the cycle. You know, what happens with star formation. And the whole idea of this is that we've gone through pretty much the whole cycle of stellar evolution right now. We started with clouds in the interstellar medium. We formed stars. The stars went through their lives. The stars go through, um, end up dying. You know, they turn into a planetary nebula. They turn into supernovae, as we looked at last time. And either one of those expels material back out into space that then helps to form new stars. And that is how we end up getting all of the elements that we see that we have here on Earth. You know, all the elements that make us up had to have one point been within a star. Because our understanding of the universe says that when the universe formed, it was hydrogen and helium alone. That was the only temp, only the universe expanded so quickly that those were the only elements that had time to form. So the earliest stars would have formed of just hydrogen and helium and would have built up all of those heavier elements in its core. And when they exploded in a supernova, that would have sent them back into space and eventually enriching material, so enriching those dust clouds instead of them just being hydrogen and helium now. Now they've also got carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and neon and iron and copper and zinc and gold and platinum and everything else that makes up the Earth would have at one point been you know, spewn out of multiple, you know, not just one, but multiple supernovae. All that material would have had to have been spread out into space from those very earliest generation of stars. So again, that's at least our current understanding, but it's a complete cycle. So over time, the earliest stars that formed would be primarily just hydrogen and helium, and we do find some stars like that. And we'll talk about those later when we get into the galaxies. And then over time, that gets enriched, so there's more and more. Still, vast majority is hydrogen and helium. Vast, vast majority of the material is still hydrogen and helium. But instead of being a tenth of a percent or a hundredth of a percent in, the, in some of the early stars, then it gets up to be closer to you know, half a percent to one percent 
of all these other, all the other elements. You know, everything beyond one and two, everything else on there on the periodic table. So that was just that was really the last slide in this chapter, and that's the just really how the cycle goes about. So let me go through the summary. Maybe you'll see something that'll you know jog your memory from the exam or make your change your mind on a question. You know, never doubt yourself when you answer it. Right? Once you get the answer, you're set. All right. Chapter 12 was hydro, was evolution of stars. Once you finish up that hydrogen, the big thing was you finished up the hydrogen in the core, the star starts to leave the main sequence. It still has, has to have some energy source. If there were no energy source at all, it would just start to collapse completely. So the core starts to collapse, but around it, it's still hot enough to burn hydrogen. Not in the central core, which is all helium, but around that where, there's, where there still is hydrogen. So that core collapses and gets hotter, the core does collapse and gets hotter and hotter, the outer atmosphere expands and cools. In a star like the sun, you get what we call the helium flash. So all of a sudden you get that temperature in that core hot enough, 100 million degrees, and you start fusing helium into carbon. And it happens extremely rapidly and eventually so it settles down a little bit there, then it expands up to a red giant again as it uses up the helium. It goes through the helium a lot faster than it went through the hydrogen. Smashing helium together doesn't get you as much energy as smashing hydrogen. There's a bigger difference, bigger mass difference between four hydrogens and one helium than there are between three heliums and one carbon atom. So you don't get as much energy out of each reaction. So you need to have more reactions, higher temperature and more reactions going on just to keep that to keep the star stable. Later again, the star it starts to collapse, and eventually those outer layers, that star gets so big that the outer layers just aren't held strong enough gravitationally. They expel, get expelled out into space, and the core is left, which becomes a white dwarf. Mentioned the, no, the novi, nova, which is material from, a, from gathering onto a white dwarf from a companion star. So we had the white dwarf there, and material would hydrogen from another star would gather up on that surface and eventually get enough of it there and hot enough that it would start it would just start burning on the surface of the star and get brighter. You know, go from being the brightness it is to being thou many thousands of times brighter and a star that you couldn't see to being a star that's very brightly visible in the sky. Now, more massive stars not only fuse up to carbon like the sun will do, but actually can fuse heavier elements up to iron. Iron is the end point. Once you get to iron, you're done. There is no more source of energy. You cannot fuse anything together once you have iron. You cannot fuse iron together and get, iron, get energy out of it. You can fuse iron together, but it takes energy to do it. When you get to the higher elements, you form, you form energy through fission, right? Nuclear fission breaks, uranium breaks apart, and that gives us energy. Uh, so you get energy as you build up elements to iron. You can build, get energy as you break down elements to iron. But trying to go the opposite direction takes energy. So when you try to go past iron, but eventually that star does get hot enough to do it. It fuses iron together. And it's, that starts cooling off the core which causes it to collapse, which causes more reactions to occur. And it goes as a runaway and eventually the core completely collapses, rebounds, and explodes. And that's what we call the type 2 supernova. So a type 2 is a massive star, something significantly more massive than the sun, at least 10 to 15 times more massive, if not more, that has exploded. 
A type 1 supernova, the other type of star that can explode, is a white dwarf star that explodes. Not something that our sun will ever do, but a white dwarf star can explode when it gathers too much mass. A white, there's a limit to how much mass a white dwarf star can have. If it has more than about 1.4 times the mass of the sun, it can't hold itself up. There's pressure pushing on it. Gravity is trying to crush that star down. And the electrons in that star are pushing each other apart. So you have negative charges, right? All those little electrons are pushing each other apart and it creates a pressure that holds it stable. What happens eventually is that if you get too much mass on it, those electrons can only emit so much force. Once you overwhelm them, it collapses. And I think I gave the example of something similar. You know, I can push on the wall, right? And I can push on the wall all day long and nothing's going to happen. But if you get a big enough, big enough force on the wall, get enough people pushing on the wall, get big machinery, it's going to collapse. The star is going to collapse too if you get enough force on it. So if you add enough material to it, it can actually collapse. All of a sudden starts nuclear reactions throughout and it tears itself apart. And that's what a type 1 supernova is. So there were the two types. Type 2 is a massive star. Type 1 is a white dwarf that blew up. All the heavy elements, and again, heavy elements to an uh, astronomer is anything that's not hydrogen or helium. So hydrogen and helium were formed very early in the history of the universe. The heavier elements were formed in the cores of stars or in supernovae. So a star like the sun produces a lot of carbon. It's not going to do the universe a lot of good because it's not going anywhere. Right? It's going to produce a lot of carbon eventually, but it's not getting out of the sun. It's going to be a nice carbon white dwarf sitting there, but no way to get it back out. Most of the material that we're made up of would have had to have been in a supernova. Would have had to have been in a supernova explosion because that's the way to expel it back out into space. So you have to have some way to get it back into space to enrich other materials. If it's locked up in that star, it doesn't do you much good. You know, you're not going to create anything within that star. So pretty much our understanding is that every, all the heavy elements, so that means you know, the oxygen that you breathe, the carbon that you're made up of, the iron in your blood, was all at one point in a supernova. And then we looked at the end at stellar evolution and how we can understand that by observing star clusters and looking at the HR diagrams of many different star clusters. Because as we talked about, you can't watch one star. There's no one star that we can just sit there and watch and watch it evolve. The time takes is too long. It takes many millions of years for the fastest evolving stars or many billions of years in order to get them through their, to get them through their lives. Not something we can watch, but when we can look at many hundreds and thousands of star clusters, we can see each stage by looking at a number of different ones. Okay, questions? I think that was it. Yep. Can you go over the, um, the process of, of equilibrium? The process of equilibrium? Yeah. Let me go back to the slide here. I think we had one was like this. Equilibrium just means that the star is in balance. So that you have gravity is always pulling on gravity exists everywhere. Gravity is pulling all matter together. So if you just ignored anything else, gravity just wants to pull all the material in that star down to a point. So it just wants to crush it. In order to stop gravity, we have to have, there has to be some other force. There has to be something pushing it the other direction. So gravity wants to pull the Earth down. Well, the Earth isn't that big. You have materials pushing against each other, and they eventually build up some amount of force, and it keeps it from collapsing. In terms of the sun, which is essentially all gas, not solid like the Earth, you need some kind of force from inside. It needs some sort of energy pushing outward. 
And when you have all those nuclear reactions going on, you have a force pushing outward that's trying to blow the star apart. Right? That energy is blowing. Essentially, you have you know, um, an infinite number, I'm going to go that big because it's that big, of nuclear bombs going off in the sun every second. They're trying to blow the sun apart. Gravity is pulling it in. Being in equilibrium just means those two perfectly balance each other. All that energy that's trying to push it apart is exactly balanced by how much is trying to pull it down. Still don't look like I got you there. Oh, no, that's okay. Okay, you just still had a quizzical look on your face. Sorry. That's okay. No, that's okay. Because I remember you saying that it goes through the cycles of equilibrium over and over again. It'll reach, it'll reach equilibrium a number of times. It'll reach equilibrium on the main sequence. Okay, hydrogen is burning in the core. It gets out of equilibrium when it runs out of hydrogen. So it gets out of equilibrium, what happens? It starts to expand. Okay? Gravity collapses one part, but the pressure that's pushing pushes other layers out. So it starts it's out of equilibrium. Once it starts burning helium, it gets back in equilibrium. So it's actually balanced again. Helium is burning, and it, put, it balances it, and you, know, you have an energy source again. Once it uses up the helium, it starts to, that core contracts, the outer layers start to expand again. It's out of equilibrium. So you have in equilibrium, you have different times when it's in equilibrium or out of equilibrium. And it just depends on whether it's got a good energy source there for a while. You'd get, reach it again, you know, once you're burning carbon. You know, one of these massive stars burning carbon would reach equilibrium again. For a very short time, it's not going to last very long. You know, that supernova stage only takes, well, the iron core will probably last, you know, less than a day. I mean, it's, you're talking about time scales. You can actually imagine. When you get up to iron, it happens that fast. But Getting there takes time. Hmm? That it would burn, well, get up to iron, and once, that's, once it gets that iron core, it would be done, you know, in that short of a time. It would be gone. Done and gone. Does that help? Okay. Anything else? Okay. On to the next chapter, then. And chapter 13. All right, let's see what we get through here. Chapter 13 is sort of the last chapter on stellar evolution. This is the end states of stars. We talked about one in the last chapter. We talked about white dwarfs. White dwarf is what the, st what the sun will become. Um, other stars that are more mass, any star that's less massive than the sun will become a white dwarf. Many stars that are more massive than the sun will become white dwarfs. Most stars will become you know, a white dwarf. Even a few times the mass of the sun, it's still going to end up being a white dwarf. Because that's just the core of it. What we're seeing here, false color image, so not actually what it, we're not going to sparkle quite that much, but you're looking at a false color image of a supernova remnant. So this is where a star has been torn apart from the explosion. A massive star you know, built up that iron core and tore itself apart. And in fact, I was just reading uh, an article, I think it was published a couple days ago, that said this supernova remnant, which is called Cassiopeia A, um, actually turned itself inside out in the explosion. Meaning that when you think about how that star built up, you had iron down at the core, and then you had slightly lighter elements as you went further and further out. And it turns out when they find the iron and the silicon and all the heavier elements, they're all to the outer edges of the nebula. And then things like you know, the carbons and the oxygens that would have been further out in the star are inside. So sort of the star almost turned itself inside out in terms of the explosion, at least in this one supernova. And again, one supernova is not very good statistics to tell you whether that's what they all do or if this was something unusual. But that was an interesting one I had just, I had just seen. 
But neutron stars and black holes are the more unusual ones that can form from the most massive stars. And what we're going to look at here, first of all, we'll talk about neutron stars today. Hopefully get, in, hopefully get into black holes at least briefly. Neutron stars are the end state of when you have a supernova explosion. What happens left, the, the star does not tear itself completely apart when it's a massive star. There's something left at the center and the neutron star is what ends up being left at the center of it. We see neutron stars as what we call pulsars. Pulsars actually are sort of blinking on, stars look like they're blinking on and off. And we'll look at those. Binary neutron stars and gamma ray bursts are all very much related. We talked about you know, the gamma ray bursts and X-ray, we'll talk about gamma ray bursters, X-ray bursters that are sort of scattered all over the, uh, some of them are, cl- cl- are stuck in the, ga- in the galaxy, some of them are scattered all around the universe. So there are different things that go on with these neutron stars, that these neutron stars can emit a lot of energy. They're very, very strong gravitationally. They have the mass of the sun, but they're shrunk down to the size of a city. So, you know, you could put a neutron star, okay, you can't really do it, but you could take a neutron star and you'll set it in Harrisburg. Okay, the gravity would be all, you know, because you're putting a mass of a sun here and that would kind of destroy everything else. But you could set it size-wise, you could set it right there literally to scale. You could put put one, you know, about 10 kilometers across, you know, six miles across, that's not all that much. And then we'll get into black holes. Black holes are more extreme when you get to the point where gravity has become so intense that the escape velocity gets higher and higher as you get more intense, but more, more, more gravity. You get more and more matter there, more gravity, escape velocity gets larger and larger. Well, for something like the Earth, we can escape it, right? We can send something going at a certain velocity, whatever the number is, and we can escape from the Earth. If you get to a black hole, a black hole is just anything that's collapsed so much that the escape velocity from its surface is greater than the speed of light. Meaning that you could send the light beam off, but it can't escape. It's going to be turned back around by the intense gravity. So if you're going that, if if your gravity is that strong, you simply can't go fast enough. Sort of in the way that, you know, we we can launch a rocket to escape the Earth's gravity, but you know, I can pick up a baseball and throw it as hard as I want in the, in the air, and it's not going to escape the Earth. No. I'm not Superman, I can't throw it that fast to get it to escape the Earth. Well, if you get enough gravity, nothing can go that fast. And as far as we know right now, nothing can go faster than light. And in terms of that, we're going to look at you know, Einstein's relativity, which tells us a lot about black holes and motion at very high speeds, and what it might be like traveling near black holes, and what evidence we have that black holes actually exist. So let's start off with the neutron stars. And you'll see this is a review from last chapter, two types of supernovae. When a type 1 supernova occurs, remember type 1? Type 1 was the white dwarf star that got too much mass. When completely unstable, nuclear reactions started throughout the entire star at once. It gets torn apart, it's gone. There's really nothing left behind that type of, that type of supernova. After a type 2 supernova, part of the core may still be there. Extremely dense. Essentially, remember I told you in a white dwarf that you had electrons pushing apart, trying to hold it steady? In a neutron star, you've gotten two, you've smashed all the space out of the atoms. So not only have you smashed down the electrons down as close as they can possibly go, but you've smashed those electrons into the atoms. So all that empty space between the nucleus and the outer electrons is gone. So you've taken something that could be as much mass as the sun 
or even a little more, and compacted it down to just a few kilometers across, just a few miles, a few kilometers across. It's essentially a gigantic atomic nucleus. It's a big ball of neutrons, so it's a gigantic atomic nucleus that you could, you know, you could sit there and see. Something 10 kilometers across, incredibly dense. I mean, it's not something you can ever go. It'd have a solid surface, you know, unlike the sun, a white dwarf or a neutron star would have a solid surface. You could never go walk on them. Okay, they'd have a solid surface. The gravity would be so intense that if you landed on a neutron star, you'd be crushed flat. The gravity is that intense that you would never be able to you know, go, there, go there for a walk or anything or go there for a visit. The gravity is so intense that it would just smash you flat. If you do the go on the, go online, you can find those little calculators that tell you, you know how much you'd weigh on the moon and how much you'd weigh on Jupiter and things. And, you know, boy, look how much I'd weigh if I were on Jupiter. You'd barely be able to walk. The density for a new, for a neutron star would be even more. You know, you'd be weighing so much that you couldn't even lift your leg if you weren't crushed flat to the surface. It would be that it's that intense. A white dwarf would be just about as bad. Not quite. Not ignoring the fact that these things are incredibly high temperatures too. So you know, not only are you going to be crushed, you're going to be melted before you get there. Because when you're talking of things that are tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of degrees. But that's what's left behind. And again, that's what the massive star, the stars that we've been talking about in the last chapter, go through their lives, build up that iron core and explode. We'd have a neutron star left behind. There's one to scale over around, showing it next to Manhattan there, just to give you a sense of scale. That's about how big a neutron star would be. About 10 kilometers, about 6 miles across. That would be for about a one solar mass one. You could have a little bit bigger, you could have it a little bit smaller, depending on exactly how much material was left and crushed together in that explosion. So not only did that explosion send a lot of material outwards, it also crushes down the core to this extremely compact object. They can have a, ra- a mass range from about one, probably about the mass of the sun, up to about three. They have a limit too. There's a limit. Right now you have essentially the new, you have a giant atomic nucleus and you have all those neutrons pushing against each other and that provides a pressure. That provides something to protect it against gravity, to keep the gravity from crushing it any further. Gravity still wants to pull that thing down to a point. It still wants to make it a black hole. But when those neutrons are pushing against each other, it can't it can't do that. There's enough pressure there. If you get more than about three solar masses, the exact number is not known. You know, it's right around three, might be three and a half, might be you know somewhere somewhere in that vicinity. Then even that neutron pressure gets overwhelmed. Those neutrons pushing against each other, and you crush it down completely, and you'd form a black hole. But just to give you an idea, this is just giving you an idea of the size there. You know, compare the neutron star to Manhattan. You know, you could fit a neutron star, again, ignore the gravity and how much mass it has, but you could take something, you could take an exact, not even a scale model, you could make a life-size model of a neutron star on the Earth very easily. Can't do a white dwarf, a white dwarf would be about the size of the Earth, but this is one object you could actually do a complete, you know, real life-size scale model, not even a scale model, real life-size model on the Earth. You could actually show how big a neutron star is. Most of the other objects we talk about are way too big to be able to do that. What else a neutron star does, we've talked about mass, how much mass it has, and how big they are. Well, they do two other things. They spin. In fact, they spin extremely fast. When the star collapses, and remember we talked about this when we talked about the stars forming in the first place. You had this big cloud of gas that may have been spinning very slowly around, and as it collapsed to form a star, it spun up. 
it sped fast, began to spin faster and faster. As the star collapses, the core does the same thing. The core starts to spin even more rapidly. So, and it's the same thing you've looked at, you know, you watch the ice skaters, right? The ice skater is spinning around and you spin with your arms out and you spin your arms in, you bring your arms in and what do you do? You, spin, you start going faster. And all you're doing is bringing that material from further out into much closer in. If you've taken a physics class, you may have seen the demo, you know, where they have, they put, they put two weights in their hands and you spin somebody and you bring those weights in and yeah, they'll spin. If you're spinning around, you'll spin faster and faster. It's just what we call a conservation of angular momentum. So when you bring that material in, when you're spinning a lot of material very far out and you bring it in very close to you, it ta- you have to spin a lot faster to keep the angular momentum that existed here conserved and still existing when you're in much, in, when it's in much closer to you. These stars, remember t- 10 kilometers across, they spin in fractions of a second. So first couple discovered might spin, you know, uh, every two seconds, every once a couple times a second, two times a second, three times, that's something 10 kilometers across, whipping around two or three times a second. There's actually ones that rotate faster than that, there's ones that can rotate many hundreds of times a second. Incredibly fast, which means they have to be this incredible dense material because anything else you can think of, a big ball 10 kilometers, and you spin it around 20 times a second, is it going to stay together? It's going to rip itself apart. So you can imagine the immense gravity and density of this object that keeps it stable under spinning under that type of a, of a speed. So they spin extremely quickly, so their rotation is increased, and their magnetic fields have increased. And you know, the sun has a relatively weak magnetic field. If you collapse it down and you get it, you concentrate the magnetic field lines and it gets much stronger. We concentrated the magnetic field lines before when we talked about the sun. We concentrated them in the sunspots, but if you can collapse the whole star down, you can actually collapse the magnetic fields and it becomes enormously strong. You know, much, much stronger than the suns, much, much stronger than any of the planets. Extremely strong magnetic field. And that's going to lead to a number of things that we'll see in the next couple of slides that actually allows us to detect these objects, because otherwise we'd never see them. Okay, they'd be very hard to, these, the, the 10 kilometers across, we're going to see that across the light years. We have trouble seeing some of these little stars and galaxies and things that are, you know, much, much bigger. So what, the magnetic field and the fast rotation actually leads to how we were able to discover these objects. First one was discovered 1967. So not that long ago, what was that, about 45 years ago? And. This is like a, this is just sort of a diagram showing the brightness that it was seen and the time variation. So they found this very regular variation about every well, a little bit more than a second. Now what's not mentioned here is this was done in radio waves. This is not visible. It's not seen in visible light. These were detected all in radio waves. So when you measured it, you'd measure a radio source with a big radio telescope and you'd see that it would get Brighter real quick and then fainter and you're looking again. These are seconds so you're seeing it brighting every couple seconds. Well, after some initial confusion, yeah, what's the first thing you think of when you might, what's the first thing you might think of when you see a signal that's very regular coming from space? Yeah, I'm sorry? A beacon, but it gives you an idea of maybe some kind of intelligence. When you see something that's occurring that regularly and that fast, you know, is somebody sending us is somebody sending us a signal? You know, to detect. 
And in fact, as I recall, the, the first one was actually uh, named LGM1 for Little Green Men. So Little Green Men 1. And it was eventually found that it was, what, what we detected was a neutron star spinning very, very rapidly. So spinning, you know, once every eh, about a second and a half or so, whatever the number is there. You know, but spinning very, very rapidly. But it's certainly, it's certainly something you know, we couldn't at the time, we couldn't imagine anything spinning that fast. You know, it wasn't something you, know, you couldn't think. There's no star that's going to be able to spin that fast. If you tried to spin the sun you know, once a second instead of once every month, it would rip itself apart. If you tried to spin the moon, you know, it's going to rip itself apart. If you tried to spin a galaxy, anything else is just way too big. There's nothing you can do to spin them that quickly. So that was a confusion, you know, not for, not for a very long time. It wasn't they thought about it for years and years, but they eventually were able to determine that this was a neutron star spinning very, very quickly and what we actually named then a pulsar. And you can see how it gets its name. It's got these little pulses of energy. And they're very strongly visible in the radio portion of the spectrum. They emit a lot of radio waves and that's where they were first detected. In fact, a lot of them were detected that way. Now why does it flash on and off? Well, the diagram here from your text is kind of showing you that. You've got the neutron star here and you've got this extremely intense magnetic field. Looks a lot like the magnetic fields we drew for the Earth. Look at the Earth, you looked at the Sun, we saw a little bit of a magnetic field like that. It's just like those except many thousands and thousands of times stronger. And what happens is if you recall those charged particles as this neutron star collects charged particles in the magnetic field, they don't like to go across the magnetic field line. So they don't want to come out this way. They don't, those charged particles don't like to cross the magnetic field line this way. They don't want to cross it this way. The only way they can come in and out is through the poles, wherever the poles of the neutron star are. So a beam of radiation can come out this way and a beam of radiation can come out that way. And it emits a lot of jet, it emits a big jet of mat matter will be emitted from those poles. That's the only place from which they can escape. And what happens, if you think about it, it's, just, it's like a, little, it's a lighthouse effect. So as that beam comes across you, you know, you see a flash for a second, then it goes around and you see nothing, then it flashes again, and the faster it's spinning, you'll see it every second, every two seconds, every three seconds, two times a second, you know, if I can spin around two times, I can't spin around two times a second, I'll, I'll get dizzy and collapse. But if you spin as fast as you can spin, that's where, whatever those that's where it's going to come. That's where you're going to see that circle tracing out. Now you might never see it. There'll be a lot of them that we're never going to see. Okay, if the beam's going like this, okay, you're not seeing it, right? You're never seeing that my hand's never coming towards you. Someone up there sees it, someone down there sees it, over there, over there, but you're never going to see it. Or if it's coming at some angle, you know, someone on this side might see it, but someone on the other side of the class never sees that beam if I were shining a flashlight around. You know, some people would never see it. You have to actually be in the beam to see it. So that means there's a lot of pulsars out there that we simply can't see. If the beam doesn't come by us, the star itself is going to be incredibly faint and hard to find. Not impossible, we'll see a couple images later where we found some, but very, very hard to try to find something like that just sitting there out, out in space, even though they're so hot. So they're incredibly hot, very high temperatures, they're so tiny that their luminosities you know, we looked at the HR diagram and you had where the white dwarfs were and these would be well, well, you know, much, much further down, you know, way off the scale to the lower left-hand side. 
So they'd be incredibly faint. But this is what causes it to flash. And you think about it as a lighthouse. If that lighthouse beam flashes in front of you, you're going to see a burst of light. We see the burst of light, the burst of radio waves from particles that are traveling along these magnetic field lines out here, out towards the poles. Those particles are accelerated and emit radio waves that we can then detect. And when that beam passes in front of us, passes across our path, we can see it. Again, we won't be able to see all of them. There'd be a lot of them out there that we can't see at all. It's only if they happen to be exactly lined up so that we can see them. But if we do, we'll actually see the star. And when you can find the star, once you can detect one, you can actually see the star will blink on and off. Not only in the radio it blinks on and off, but you can see if you can find one in the optical, it will blink on and off. So it'll be there and it won't be there. It'll be there and it won't be there on a very, very short time. I have a picture of that. I think it's the next slide coming up. The energy goes away quite rapidly. These things are spinning very, very quickly and in rapidly, tens of millions of years. Short time astronomically, the pulsars become essentially undetectable. Because I said, we can't see them at all as they are, right? They're not going to be not going to see that little thing 10 kilometers that's hundreds of light years away. It's just not visible. If it's not sending out these incredible beams of radiation as it slows down and the radiation weakens, we're not going to be able to detect that. And as I mentioned the last time, you also can't see it if the jets never point towards us. If the jets are pointing off in this direction, you know, making a nice little circle over here, well, guess what? Those of us over here on Earth are never going to see, never going to see that beam. So we won't be able to detect it. So in terms of a pulsar, when we're detecting those neutron stars, we're only detecting the ones that happen to be pointing in our direction. We can't necessarily detect all of them. It's just not possible. If their beams aren't pointing towards us, you know, it's sort of like trying to look at a lighthouse from up above it. If you're standing up above looking down on the lighthouse, you know, you're not going to really see that bright beam. You might see the beam moving around, but you're not going to see that brightness of the beam, the intensity of the beam, the same way with a neutron star pulsar. You're not going to be able to see that unless that beam is coming right at you. It's going to be much too weak to be able to see. So we have those two things. It's going to get weak very quickly, and it's also not going to be visible if the jets aren't pointing, aren't pointing towards us. Questions? Questions? Okay, I think I got an image for you. Yeah, there's the, there's the pulsar. This is the Crab Nebula. Crab Nebula is a very famous supernova remnant in the constellation of Taurus. And that's the supernova remnant right here. When you zoom into the center, we can actually see the pulsar. There's a pulsar that's a combination of visible and x-ray. But if we look at it in the visible part of the spectrum, you can see a few objects here. The arrow's pointing to the pulsar. And it's now you see it, now you don't. You know, take an image of it when it's on, or take an extended image, you'll see it is on. If you take very, very short images, and you can catch it when it's off, and there's nothing there. When that beam is, the, here's the beam pointing right at you. Beam's pointing at you, wherever you are. Here, now the beam's pointing someplace else. It's invisible. So you can only see them when the beam is passing right through us. Or you detect them as, by looking at it in the radio, you detect those pulses. You can only see them at very certain times. The Crab Nebula is a supernova that occurred almost a thousand years ago now. We saw it on Earth about a thousand years ago. And it was a very prominent supernova. It's actually in the constellation of Taurus, so something that's relatively easy, visible, easily visible. 
It's not a beautiful sight through a small telescope. It looks like a little fuzzy little blob. But when you have a bigger telescope like this, something like Hubble can actually get much more detail and look at the images of it and see much more detail in it. We've had been able to take pictures of it you know, over hundreds of years now. And you can actually watch it expanding. Not a lot, but you can actually measure it. You look at these little filaments. And if you can find filaments in a picture taken now and a picture taken 20 years ago and 30 years ago, you can measure the expansion of it. You can measure how fast it's expanding and you can trace that backwards. Okay, it's expanding this fast. When was it all together? You can just work backwards. If it's expanding, you know, so many meters per second, you can figure out how long ago it was that it would have been all been together. So you can actually do a measurement to do, to do that, determine how close, how long ago it occurred. Of course, we also know it was visible. This is a supernova that was visible and documented 1,000 thousand years ago, 1054. It also pulses in gamma rays. So gamma rays are the most intense radiation. And the Jaminga pulsar is another one that's yeah, about 15 or 20 degrees away. Remember that in gamma rays you can't focus them, so you've got a big blob there for the Crab Nebula. And about 15 or 20 degrees, so a few full moons, eh, a few full moons, about 30 full moons across the sky, you'd have about another pulsar that, again, they're both very bright in the gamma rays. So they not only pulsate in, you know, radio is where they, most of them were detected. Radio requires the least energy of them. Radio waves, remember, the lowest energy, easiest to form. So it's easiest to see things in radio waves. The radio emission will last a lot longer. The gamma ray emission has to be from a relatively young, probably from a relatively young pulsar or one that's you know, gotten extra energy from some source because it takes a lot of energy to form the gamma rays. It takes a lot of energy to create those gamma rays. So in order for it to be pulsing on and off in gamma rays, it takes an intense amount of energy, it takes an intense amount of energy to be able to see that. So, but we can see them pulse in x-rays, gamma rays, you know, different pulsars, visible light, we looked at the Crab Nebula last, last slide, and all the way down into the radio. So you can see them pulse in all different wavelengths. Radio was just the primary one because that's where they were, they were first discovered. Now, I said they're hard to see. Here's one example where we apparently found one. This was observed by the Hubble Space Telescope back in 96 and 99 where we found an extremely hot object, 700,000 degrees. Okay, That may sound little compared to some of the numbers we were talking about in the cores of the stars. But when we talk, remember talk about the surface temperatures of stars, something you can actually see? Well, we talk about the sun 6,000 degrees, so you know. Go down a couple zeros. You know, some of the hottest stars are 20 and 30 and maybe 40,000 degrees. You're still 10 times hotter than that. If this were a star, if it were possible to have a star of that temperature, it should be incredibly bright. But I don't know if you can tell by looking at that picture, but that picture, you're looking at a very faint object because you're looking down at the little pixels within the, within the image. So you know, you're not seeing a nice bright object. You're seeing an extremely faint object. And this is actually one example of an isolated neutron star that's probably relatively close, moving very quickly, relatively close. You know, not, not in our solar system, but relatively close you know, compared to talking hundreds and thousands of light years away, and moving extremely quickly. I mean, it moved a chunk of the sky, a very decently measurable amount in three years. There are some stars that don't move much of a measurable amount in three years. So it must be moving extremely quickly and even, even be able to measure it just between, you know, within about six months. 
to be able to measure the different distance between and how much it's moved. So we have been able to see an isolated neutron star. Not a pulsar, it doesn't look like us like a pulsar. So it may be relative, it looks like it's relatively young, a very high temperature. So that means its beams are probably just pointing out in other directions in space. If we live somewhere else in the universe, we might see it as a pulsar. But those beams are probably just not passing in front of Earth, so we never actually get to see it. But that's one example where we have been able to see an isolated neutron star. And then I said binaries. You can get x-rays, you can get, you can get neutron stars in a binary system, just like we talked about white dwarf stars. Talk about white dwarf stars in a binary system and they'd collect matter from another star. Well, a neutron star can do the same thing. A neutron star could be in a binary system and could collect matter from a companion and could cause a burst of x-rays. Now the example here is what we've seen is if we look at the center of our galaxy, we see these bursts of x-rays that occur. So here you're looking at the center with the Einstein Observatory which looks at the universe in x-rays. And you'd see an object here. Okay, there it is. And during the outburst, it got significantly brighter. It was a relatively, had some x-rays forming from it there, but it had a lot of x-rays all of a sudden that occurred, a burst of x-rays, sort of the way when we talked about a nova. Nova was there and you could see it, but all of a sudden when something happened, when that nuclear reaction started on its surface, boom, it got incredibly bright. Well, these are objects that we see. Some examples are near the center of the galaxy, but we see them in other, other areas as well, are the example of you know, an x-ray burst. So instead of a visible light burst as we saw in ANOVA, we're getting an x-ray burst. We're getting an intense emission in the x-ray portion of the spectrum. And this could be due to something very similar to what we saw for ANOVA. Remember ANOVA was, you know, no, not supernova, just a regular nova, was just material collecting on a white dwarf. Well, we think they ha these happen the same way. Neutron stars have a binary partner. So you have a neutron star and you have something else orbiting with it. And the process would be the same as a nova. Okay? That star might, might, have been a, might have been a main sequence star, might have evolved into a red giant now. So its material is getting transferred to the, transferred to the, the neutron star. Neutron star is much hotter than a white dwarf. Gravity is much more intense. So when you collect enough material on the surface, it's going to ignite just like it did on the white dwarf once you get enough material there. But it's igniting with a much more intense gravity and it's going to emit x-rays instead. So instead of just bursting out invisible light, it's going to burst out in x-ray radiation. So you'll get a big burst of x-rays coming from these objects. Same process as ANOVA. You've got a compact star and you've got a regular big ordinary type star or a red giant star. Matter transfers from one to the other, collects up on the surface. Once it gets hot enough, once there's enough there, the same thing would happen except it's going to be much more intense when it occurs on a neutron star. It's much smaller, much more compact, much hotter, and much stronger gravity. So that, extreme, that really strong gravitational field sort of lends to increasing the activity, increasing the intensity that we see. So again, X-ray bursters that we see, we see a lot of them in our galaxy. So towards the center of our, towards the center of our galaxy where there's a lot of older stars and stars that may have gone supernova at some point in the past, we see a great number of these types of X-ray bursters. 
And again, it's just due to the intense gravity. Same thing happened on a white dwarf. You can get matter transferring between two ordinary stars, but you never get a burst like this. There's nothing special that will occur between them. You can transfer matter between them, but nothing like this would happen. It takes that intense gravitational field of the white dwarf or the neutron star in order to do it. So here's an example. Or here, here's the pulsar. Okay, sorry. Pulsars, I said we looked at some of those. They have periods. Some of the longest ones are a second or so. Shorter ones go down to you know, a couple times a second to 10 or 20 times a second. But there are some that actually can spin hundreds of times a second. They call them the millisecond pulsars. So their periods are measured in milliseconds. So you're spinning hundreds of times. Um, one millisecond would be a thousandth of a second. So these would be spinning you know, hundreds of times every second. It's fast. I mean, you're spinning something 10 kilometers across 100 times a second. There's nothing we can imagine that could spin that fast. Yes, sir? I can't even comprehend how fast that's moving. How did they, how did they um, figure out how fast it's moving if they can't really? Well, we can measure the pulses. You can measure the, you can measure the pulses that accurately. I mean, we can measure the pulse. We can measure a millisecond. I mean, time-wise, we can measure that very accurately. So we could measure and we could say, you know, probably one of the reasons we didn't see them at first was that we, we weren't looking for something going that fast. Well, nothing can spin that fast, so we saw things that were going second. And as the people kept going lower and lower, it's like, my goodness, things are still spinning that fast. So yeah, but you can't, I, mean, I, can't, I can't imagine. I can't spin myself. You know, I can't imagine anything that spins that fast. I mean, spinning something a couple times a second is pretty good. But to imagine something spinning a hundred times a second, especially something 10 kilometers across, you know, it's not just like me trying to spin that top faster and faster and faster. Well, you can get it going. I don't know how fast can you spin a top. You know, good number of times a second, I'm sure. But nothing compared to, you know, not compared to spinning. Hundreds of times a second. That's fast. And what we think happens with these, because they're not necessarily the younger pulsars, these could be older ones, we think that these are due to material falling into the neutron star. So you get this little disk of material as matter falls in, it kind of goes into orbit and just is in a slowly descending orbit and comes and strikes this, the star almost parallel to its surface. So it gives, keeps giving a little push. If you think about it, it's, if the neutron star is spinning this way and material is spiraling in quickly and hits it, it keeps giving a little bit of push. And you keep doing that, and you keep doing that, and you keep doing it. You're, gonna, you're giving, giving, pushing that star, so you've got something rotating, you keep giving it a push in the same direction, it's going to spin faster and faster and faster. And we think that's how these occur. Because it, would make it wouldn't make sense, they're supposed to slow down. I mean, normally things should slow down. Right? Over time, they should go slower and slower. So you shouldn't see many, pul many millisecond pulsars, if they have formed, would be only among the very most recent supernovae. You know, just to form. They should slow down very quickly to things that are in more typical ranges up here. In order to see so many of them and where we see them, some, there has to be some process, and this is our current best idea, is that some process has to be giving it a kick. You know, giving that star a kick just to keep it, keep it moving quickly and actually to accelerate its rotation. So we think it might be material falling into it. So maybe there is some kind of companion star. And depending on the exact geometry, as that material spirals in, again, if the star was spinning the other way, you'd slow it down. But as the spiral, everything goes in the same direction, it's giving that, that neutron star a little kick or a little push each time. So, you know, push the kid up, push the little kid on the swing, right? And you push him just push him at the right time, they're gonna go faster and faster and faster until they start screaming, no more. But that's what we think they do. And this is an example from a globular cluster. Looked at the globular cluster earlier. 
but a globular cluster where if you look at the center, this is visible, this is what it looks like in visible light. If we go just to this center, and we're not looking in visible light anymore, we're looking in x-rays, we've switched to x-rays here, we see all these x-ray sources at the center of this globular cluster. About half of these are thought to be these millisecond pulsars. So it seems like there's a lot of material, a lot of this happens quite often. Not only are you seeing, you know, there's 108 separate x-ray sources, 50 some of those in one globular cluster are believed to be these millisecond pulsars. So it has to be some sort of mechanism that's relatively easy and relatively common. And because binary stars are so common, this is certainly the best method, one of the best methods. We can think of it that way, it's just giving, giving that star a little bit of a kick, giving that neutron star a little bit of a kick and accelerating its speed from material as it falls in. So again, as I mentioned it before, you're spinning them up. They were spinning slower, you start giving, you know, Kids going back and forth on the swing nice and easy and you come and start giving pushes and you push them right at the right time, they're going faster and faster and faster. If you have a little ball spinning and you know, hold the ball and you start spinning it and you give it that push just at the edge each time, it's going to spin faster and faster. If you stop, it's going to slow down, right? It's going to stop, it's going to slow, start spinning slower and slower and slower. But as long as you're giving it that push, you can keep it going fast at an incredibly fast speed. So that's what we think. We think there's some sort of matter transfer going on between the neutron stars and maybe some either small, either a main sequence star or red giant, you know, some other type of star that is transferring material to it or some other way that it's collecting the material. Okay, that was X-ray bursts. How about gamma ray bursts? Well, we found those. Uh, gamma ray bursts were found by, I think it was by, more likely by military satellites first than by astronomical satellites. You know, observing, looking for, well, big sign of a gamma ray burst is going to be a nuclear explosion. So if you're looking for test ban treaty violations, you know, you're looking for gamma ray bursts coming. Well, not coming from Earth, but coming from all over the sky. And when you look at this, this kind of image here, this is showing the entire sky, sort of like you've seen projections of the Earth like this. Well, this is doing the entire sky on one image. And if you see, remember we look at a picture, if we look at this, we've seen the Milky Way, our galaxy, and it's all concentrated right along this line right here. Look at where the gamma ray bursts are, over 2,000 of them. They're all over the place. So they're not part of our galaxy. They're not confined to any one portion of the sky. They occur here just as often as they do here or here or here or here or within our galaxy or outside of our galaxy. So we think that they are something that occurs away from our galaxy. They just occur randomly in the universe, but they're not part of our galaxy. If they, recur, if they occurred in our galaxy, anything that's in our galaxy would be confined very, very strongly right to the central line. That central line would be the plane of our galaxy when we take a picture of the sky. We don't find them there. There's no clumps. They don't occur, well they mostly occur over here, but hardly any over here. You know, there's a few little clumps, but it looks pretty much like a very random distribution. And again, this is about, well, this is about, what, more than, more than 2,500, 2,700 of them. But they're not, they're occurring all over the universe. So why are we getting gamma ray? What is, ga what is a gamma ray burst as compared? We're looking for something even more intense than the X-ray burster. We had the novae that were occurring, right? Novae were just visible light bursts. We had material accreting onto a neutron star that gave us an X-ray burst. What's something that's going to be more intense? Black hole doesn't work. Black hole would be the next object up, and we'll be talking about those very shortly. But 
a black hole you can't release anything from. Question, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it says, therefore, like your last sentence mm -hmm. there, it says the first have to come from outside the galaxy. Yeah. It's because of the way they're distributed across the sky. If they came from our galaxy, our galaxy, if I put a map of our galaxy on this, you know, our galaxy is very, very thin and would fit right around this line. So if they came from our galaxy, then there'd be many more, they'd all be concentrated right down to the middle here. Because we're seeing them, you know, completely out this way of our galaxy, completely out this way, then we say that they're not confined to our galaxy. Could something occur in our galaxy? Sure. You know, our galaxy, but you know, our galaxy could be one of these dots. Could be part. Could be something that occurred in our galaxy. But it's it's where they're distributed. If we see anything for our galaxy, it's always going to be very very flat. When we look at the Milky Way, it's a very thin band of light. When we look at the the galaxy in X-rays or radio waves, it's all very well concentrated right towards this central line. Okay. Others? No. No. Okay. Here's just a couple examples of what you see, and the things get incredibly bright by, you know, you had so many counts, done in counts, uh, gamma rays, again, you can't focus the light, you can't make an image, you can really only count how much intensity you have coming from a general area of the sky. So, but you'd go from having, you know, 10,000, boom, shoot up to 40,000 in a very, very short time, we're measuring times in seconds here. So you can be talking tiny fractions of a second to you know a few seconds, five seconds here, maybe you know, half a minute here. Very, very short times that there's an incredible burst of these gamma rays. Incredible burst of gamma rays coming from some point on the sky and then disappearing almost as quickly. You know, if you look at this one here, you had an intense burst and it was gone, you know, a tenth of a second later, it was gone. So an incredibly intense burst on something on a very, very short time scale. Those aren't the time scales I'm used to me talking about. Usually I'm saying, oh, it's a million years, it's a short time. Now we've got, you know, talking tenths of seconds and hundreds of seconds and things like that. Some of these, some of these most intense um, activities in the universe do occur on very, very short time scales. Now what do we think? We can measure some of the distances. This is where we're coming to, coming to your question again. Another way to determine it is that we have been able to determine distances to some of them. The very first one measured was about 2 billion parsecs. Parsec is a little over 3 light years. You're talking 6, almost 7 billion light years, which is about halfway out to the edge of the universe, edge of the visible universe. That's way out there. You know, that's just not, that's not in our galaxy. Our galaxy is only you know, tens of thousands of parsecs across. You're talking billions of parsecs. So occasionally you can get a measurement. If you can get a measurement, you can actually get a distance measurement to it. So if you can find the object, you know, the object that burst, if you can find it in gamma rays, and then you can find out where that occurred visibly, you know, there's some distant galaxy, there's another distant galaxy, but here's this object. These are very far out in the universe. These aren't anything that is real close to us. So in a way, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, you know, talking about the rest of the universe when we haven't even gotten to our galaxy yet, but that's coming up, coming up shortly. But they're very far away. They're not close to us. So the couple we've measured, now could we find one that's closer? Perhaps. But many of them that we're finding are looking well out in the distant, in the distant universe and in the distant past. Remember, if we see it 7 billion light years away, that was 7 billion years ago that it occurred. 
We're just seeing it now. It took that light all that time to travel to us. But it occurred 7 billion years ago. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, our atmosphere burns off all the gamma rays. Our atmosphere would block out the gamma rays, yes. All of it? I would say, yeah. Pretty much. I don't think much can get through. If anything, I mean, I'm not going to say the odd gamma ray doesn't sneak through, but it's, our atmosphere is dense enough that gamma rays are going to hit something coming in and be absorbed by oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere before they get down to the surface of the Earth. And that's why we have to observe gamma rays. We have to have a telescope in space up above the atmosphere. But yeah, it blocks out pretty much anything coming from space. Now, of course, we'll detect gamma rays coming further down in Earth. You know, gamma rays are created on Earth, too, in regular standard nuclear, you know, not just nuclear reactions, but just natural nuclear decay in materials. So you could produce gamma rays as well that way. But yeah, our atmosphere would pretty much block out everything, so you really can't see them. You really wouldn't be able to see them from the surface of the Earth. Now, what we think the gamma ray bursters might be are, there's a couple things that have been suggested, one of which is a neutron star, two, two neutron stars orbiting around each other, which might be in a decaying orbit, might get closer and closer to the point where they'd actually merge together. And at some point that merger would, could cause an explosion, causes what we call an accretion disk of material around the very compact object, either a neutron star or a black hole forming at the center. And that intensity of that collision could cause an explosion. So could cause something to, could cause a big burst, cause an explosion, cause a big burst of gamma rays to come out. So that merging of two neutron stars. The other one that's suggested is a collapsing star. Now one of the things that's talked about when we collapse a star, and I sort of, I kind of washed over it when I talked about a massive star exploding the last time, that the star collapses and I said it just explodes. Well, also have to think, when that star is exploding, it's a big explosion, but there's a lot of material around that star. And there are some models for some supernovae, depending on the conditions, where that material spreading out actually gets stopped. So that explosion starts, but there's so much material around it that it gets stopped. And that's what we call a stall. The supernova actually stalls. It starts to blow up, so the material is starting to come out from the center. But there's so much material it's trying to push through it, it zaps up all that energy and it stops. Well, what's going to happen? It stalls. Material is still going to start collapsing again. And you're going to form a black hole at the center. So if you've got enough matter there, so a very massive star, you might have a black hole form at the center. And that black hole starts to accrete matter and gets, starts emitting energy and sort of restarts the supernova. So it goes around and then it causes it to that black hole forms, material starts to win it, and it restarts the supernova and causes the explosion. So in this, in this case, you know, it's not quite as simple in this gamma ray burst suggestion. It's a little bit different than what I told you in the regular supernova. But not all supernovae seem to be this gamma ray burst, so it might be in certain conditions where this occurs. But it would just be a stall in the supernova. And you're just trying to push out. You know, you're trying to push through all this material. You're trying to push all this material out. Eventually, you're going to run out of energy. You know, if you've got enough energy, you're going to push right through it. You know, if you explode it with a big enough bomb and you explode something, you know, the building's going to explode. But if you put a little bomb there, well, you might tear apart some of the rooms, but parts of it are going to remain standing. You're going to use up all that energy. Same thing with the supernova. If you've got enough energy, you tear that star completely apart. Boom, it's gone and you're viewing it out into space. If you don't have enough energy, then you might stall. And all that material will start to collapse back down, form a dense black hole at the center. That black hole will start 
taking in matter, accreting matter, and give out a lot of energy, and then explode back, and then explode back outward again. How is that possible? I don't, I don't How is it possible to do what? To yeah, because it, it seems I always thought that once you had a black hole, there was nothing else after that because it, it just the it takes in everything around it. So how can it? Only if you're very close to it. A black hole. A black black hole isn't a cosmic vacuum cleaner. It doesn't just suck up everything around it. If the sun turned into a black hole this instant, well, it would get cold and dark, but the Earth would still orbit around it just like it orbits right now. The Earth and Venus and Mercury would not get all sucked into the black hole. Assuming the sun is the same, you don't change the mass. You just take all the sun, crush it down to a black hole instantaneously. The orbits of the planets don't change. They're too far away from it. So the material real close down here probably would be and you'd, but, you'd, but you'd have an intense amount of energy. You'd have so much matter right around this black hole that would emit a lot of energy as it's spiraling in. Once it gets in the black hole, it's gone. We can't know anything about it. But as you're spiraling in around it, just outside the, what we call the event horizon of the black hole, it, it can get out. Material can still escape if you're out the side of what we call the surface of the black hole. You can still get away. So it's not, it's, it's, the idea is it's not a big vacuum cleaner. It's not going to suck up everything right away. A black hole forms, it doesn't just go whoop, everything's gone. Sort of the popular misconception on it, but it's not—it's not really what a black hole what a black hole does. There should still be a disclaimer, <laughs> right? What? The, about the distance. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk about that when we talk about black holes here. This well, I won't get too much into them, but let me just give you the pictures here, which just show an example of a gamma ray burst, and this is just sort of showing that it looks like a strong supernova. So it sort of gives credence to that hypernova, you know, the one you're questioning, which is good, but it's sort of giving evidence that that likely is the case. It looks like an exceptionally strong supernova. So that black hole, instead of sucking everything up, which it does, it's, it's sucking up some material, but as that material spirals in, it gets incredibly hot and it emits an incredible amount of energy, which blasts out the rest of the star. So those outer layers that are further away get blasted out. And you end up, when you're looking in the visible, well, You've got a little bit, tiny little supernova remnant here you can start to see, or hypernova, as you call it, maybe a hypernova remnant, this type of forms a black hole here. So it's sort of the, what we call the hypernova, something beyond a supernova, something even more intense. Okay. Well, we'll get barely started on black holes. We've got a couple, couple minutes left, and then we'll pick up on these on Tuesday. The mass of the neutron star cannot exceed about three solar masses. That's not a hard and fast limit. We don't know the exact limit because we can't experiment with nuclear matter that well. You know, we can't experiment with a big ball of neutrons and say how much matter has to be there before it collapses, before we can push it down. If we could do that, we could make our own black holes, right? We could just crush something down tight enough to make a black hole. If it's more massive than that, if you've got more than about three to three and a half solar masses, nothing can stop the collapse. Electron stopped it at a white dwarf. Neutron stopped it at a neutron star. If you crush it through the neutrons, there's nothing left, left, left to collapse. So essentially, the current physical understanding is that it would collapse down to a point. So you know, collapse the whole mass of the star down to, down to a tiny point. Gets denser and denser, infinitely dense, infinitely small. And what happens at some point as it's collapsing, and it's not that much over a new, neutron star is close, but neutron star isn't quite a black hole. But if you condensed it down, you know, about half to a third of the size, it would actually be a black hole. So you only have to collapse a little bit smaller than a neutron star to get the gravitational force so intense 
that even light cannot escape. The escape velocity comes great, becomes greater than light. So you shine that light beam out and it comes back. It'll come back. It'll have to come back. It would turn around and come back because it can't escape. The velocity, the velo escape velocity is that strong. So that's why we call it a black hole. We can't see anything about it. We can't know what goes on inside a black hole. Because there's no way for any signal, nothing can travel faster than light, so nothing can get out of that black hole in order for us to be able to detect it. So we would not be able to detect it. And I'll give you these, let's see, yeah, I'll give you these next time. But the radius at which the escape speed equals is what we call the Schwarzschild radius or the event horizon. That's what we call the edge of the black hole or the surface of a black hole. It has no surface in the way the Earth has a surface or the Moon has a surface or even that the Sun has a surface. You know, we can see a surface of the Sun. You can't see a surface of a black hole. It's a theoretical construct. The black hole is just that little point at the center where all the matter has been concentrated. The surface of the black hole is the point at which you cannot see anything. If anything gets inside the Schwarzschild radius, also we call the event horizon, then nothing gets out of it. Everything has a Schwarzschild radius. If you can condense the whole Earth down to about a centimeter, take all the matter in the Earth and condense it down to about there, the Earth becomes a black hole. Light would not be able to escape from the Earth. You've got to condense, and that's quite, quite a bit of condensing to do. You know, nothing in our technology could come close to that. But if you could do that, it would be about a centimeter. The sun's, for a, ma a solar mass, is about three kilometers. So that gives you an idea how close you have to be. That's where the surface of the black hole would be. If you can compress the entire sun down to a black hole, the, er the area, area of no return, where you couldn't get out, is about three kilometers. You'd notice the effects closer than that, but once you got to you know, 10 and 20 and 30 kilometers away from the black hole, those effects go down very, very quickly. So Schwarzschild radius, again, is just the radius at which light cannot escape. Once the black hole has collapsed, again, I've mentioned it, I've called it the event horizon. And it's the event horizons. We cannot know anything that goes on inside that black hole. We, don't know, we can't know any events that occur closer to the black hole than that. So nothing that happens down there we can know about. Nothing that is down there you know, we, can't, we can't find out about. Nothing can ever get out of there. You can get in, can't get out. So there's no way to find out anything that's going on there. You could have an explosion going down there, massive explosion, you know. We'd never know about it. Nothing can escape from that black hole. No information, no light, no gamma rays, no x-rays, no radio waves. Nothing can escape once you get inside that event horizon. It would crush it. It depends on the exact black hole. And I'll look at, we'll look at those a little more next time. And when we get towards later in the class, I have a couple. But some of the black holes, something like the sun, yeah, you get torn apart before you got into the black hole. Something that was the mass of the sun. Something that's the mass of a galaxy, not necessarily. Then the event horizon gets big enough that you don't even notice the gravitational effects until you've gotten inside the black hole. Inside the event horizon, not inside the, you know, there is no inside the black hole. But when I say inside the black hole, I mean within the event horizon. Questions? Questions? We'll pick up and finish up black holes on uh, next Tuesday. So enjoy your break. Uh, don't forget the exams. If you're not going to get them to me now, make sure I get them by the end of the day one way or another so I can get those graded for you. Have a good break and I'll see you next Tuesday.